everyone. Welcome to Pod Culture Oz, an Australian pop culture podcast about genre fiction. Once again, we're excited to be here with you. I'm your host, Philippa, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dave. Start at the beginning. And Nick. I am the alpha. So this episode, we're doing something a bit different. Last year, when we were discussing the fantasy and heroine's journey episode, Nick asked if we could do an episode on endings. So this is it. Nick, what appeals to you about this topic? Well, if you remember back to the Apocalypse episode, I talked about how I like Apocalypse films or stories where everybody dies and there's no hope for survival. And I think one of the reasons I like that is because it's so final. There's no loose ends at all in a story like that because loose ends are such a human thing and when you've got no humans left, there's you know, no space for loose ends. So I was enticed by the idea of endings, I think, partially because they're often done so poorly. I and mean, I think we've all had a moment where we've finished a text and gone, oh, that was kind of garbage. And I thought I just wanted to figure out what makes them good, what makes them bad. And I thought we could have like a fairly productive discussion about that. So the more I thought about it, the more I realized that endings are kind of weird. They're a fictional conceit. They're sort of invented to bring closure to the stories that satisfy us precisely because closure doesn't really exist in the real world. Endings are in fact part of that satisfaction, I think. They're kind of part of the escapism of fiction. In the real world, nothing ends except individual lives. There's always consequences to every action. The credits never roll. Uh, And if you think about the way things happen in your own lives, you don't finish anything you just make peace with the lingering and ongoing effects or not and we've in fact got a whole bunch of psychological words for the fact that nothing ever really ends we call it trauma we call it grief so yeah i guess i guess you know how's this for a chirpy saturday morning feeling but part of what i'm saying is the only true ending is death so dave said when i pitched this to him that it's a very historian move and i think he's right i think my take on endings is influenced by my background. Uh, I've never seen anything actually end really, only evolve and change. The kind of classic example of this being the fall of the Roman Empire, which took centuries by some interpretations, and left us with a legal system that we still use, half a language, and the Roman Catholic Church. So you can't actually argue that even something 2,000 years old is over. And I mean, Dave, you know, you're a lapsed Catholic, so I'm pretty sure you've got a similar set of feelings about uh, about Jesus. But <laughs> And I learned that at school. You know, there you go. Right? You know, we thought Jesus had an end and then he got up again. Yeah, right. So uh, nothing ends, I think, is the point. Even the things we think of as ancient still carry on in some kind of way. So, yeah, like I think it's pretty clear endings are a thing that humans imagine through their fiction because it just makes life easier to imagine that stuff stops eventually other than your own life. So I want to think about endings in a couple of different ways. I want to think, given that they represent something that doesn't really exist in nature apart from the Grim Reaper, how do we know when they work? What are the rules of a good ending, if there are rules? Uh, And why is it so hard to end a story well? So, yeah, I was thinking we could talk about a good ending each and a bad ending each and then maybe come up with some definitions. So on that note, what makes a good ending? I found this definition that I quite like. Uh, Good endings make sense. They evoke emotion like contentment, anger or sadness or curiosity. They shift the reader's perspective or open their mind to new ideas. They do not confuse or cast the whole story as a hoax. Good endings bring the hero and more importantly the reader or viewer to some kind of destination even if it's a trap. Dave, we'll start with you. What's your choice for best endings? Well, I actually like to start with some definitions i'd first of all go back to middle school english class Uh, (laughs) so endings in narratives tend to have 
two parts, right? There's the climax, the big battle, the the ultimate duel, the rush against time. And then there's the resolution. Which of the two do you think we're going to talk about? I get the sense it's mostly the resolution. Yeah, I think mostly the resolution, but I think a lot of people get confused and consider the climax the ending. I think the climax is important, but it's pretty easy to do right I think right like a big battle I remember like teacher in third grade drawing a little line and then the slope upwards and then that's the uh, tension line the tension line yeah and the climax after the climax is the slope downwards right so that's the resolution I think a lot of people forget about that Mm. I was actually thinking about the tension line as I was saying that because it was probably in the same class or at least (laughs) the same semester I think I've got tension lines all over my forehead (laughs) (laughs) definitely up and down my shoulders (laughs) anyway so what's a good ending I'm going to talk about probably the foundational ending for genre fiction, and that's Lord of the Rings. Canonical. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay, so one of the popular criticisms of the Lord of the Rings films is that the ending's just gone forever. There's like three endings. It feels like fake outs. Best description I've ever heard of that kind of uh, narrative structure is a collapsing third act. <laughs> and I'll, look, mm. I'll admit that the film feels like it, it could be, you know, two hours shorter as a result. But I think function, <laughs> functionally, the extended resolution of Return of the King is actually really important. And I went back to check and it's only 100 pages of the Return of the King, at least the paperback edition that I read. It's about a 600-page book too, isn't it? Yeah. And it's probably less if you read the single volume, which is traditionally about 1,039 pages. About, approximately. (laughs) Yeah, I love that traditionally about and then a precise figure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have several single volume copies. (laughs) We have a whole shelf full of Lord of the Rings books. I, I Yeah, I kind of love it still. Millennium edition, Uh, 100th anniversary edition. Yeah, I've got like the six hardcover box set. Anyway, it's about 100 pages. And, uh, you know, it sort of, it flows straight on from the destruction of the ring and the battle at the Black Gate. In fact, there is the chapter break at the destruction of the ring. The next chapter opens up with the end of the Battle of the Black Gate and that just flows into the rescue of Frodo and then, you know, Frodo is celebrated, then the resurrection of the White Tree, Aragorn's wedding, and then everybody sort of chills out in Minas Tirith for a bit and then they start heading home and they catch up with Saruman on the road, they see Bilbo in Rivendell, they have a couple nights in Bree and then the Hobbits get another climax, (laughs) which, you know... Maybe they did cut out of the film, but I think that it's probably just as important thematically because at this point everything for the Hobbits has been an arc of growth, but their arcs are not yet finished. So they have to come back and deal with the repercussions of the war on their own terms as the grown characters that they are. Yeah, and look, The Scouring of the Shire is probably my favourite chapter in Return of the King and one of my favourites in the entire series other than, you know, the Rohirrim stuff. And I understand in terms of narrative structure and timing why they cut out other movies. I'm glad we at least got to see a glimpse of it in Galadriel's Mirror with Sam. But, you know, it's a shame that they couldn't just make an extra act for The Scouring of the Shire because it's so good. It, it's usually part of the hero's journey and I'm not just including Frodo in this, I'm including Mary Pippin and Sam. 
they return home changed and they find their home is changed and they have to restore their home. And that is such a pivotal part, you know. And then Frodo's the one who can't live there afterwards. The others are changed but they manage to fit themselves in as changed people. Yeah, so there's essentially another climax and another resolution, right? There's the climax and resolution for the world, destruction of the ring and then, you know... um, The king is back, yeah. yeah, The actual return of the king. And then for the hobbits, the climax is scouring of the Shire where they violently clean up the mess that was left behind. uh, Sorry, that popped up while they were away, not there to protect it. And the the argument is there that they wouldn't have been able to stop uh, Saruman's depredations if they hadn't gone out into the world and become heroes in their own right. And then we wrap up. Right then, we restore the Shire, and people get married. And then, uh, as Flip said, Frodo realizes that he can't stay, so he goes to the Great Havens and sails into the West. So I want to pose a bit of a question because actually, and I think this is going to be a real fun part of this discussion. But uh, you're not describing what I think of as a good ending, even though I have no actual problems with the Lord of the Rings ending. Because actually, what you're describing is an ending that just forgets to end like it keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps but going it doesn't. And it- but it doesn't sam comes back and says well i'm home you know and, sure. that's, and that parallels the ending of the hobbit when frodo says well i'm back it does but what you've described is you know actually as a reader i've always found quite jarring it jumps between kind of levels of scope it jumps between tones like the kind of tone of wedding and the coronation of aragon is so jarring in when compared to, to the tone of uh, of just life in hobbiton i think that's deliberate though but it starts Look, with it the might, party yeah. and expands out and then it comes sure. back in again yeah it's sure you can i'm talking about a subjective reckoning it's always felt jarring to me and part of the reason it's always felt jarring is i don't think I've never, and uh, I talked about this last episode too, I actually think the Hobbits sort of don't really fit in the story more broadly and I think it's always difficult to make them fit. But I want to pose a different question which steps out of the realm of the subjective, which is part of what's happening here is is the resolution of about four different stories, some of which are a couple of hundred years long, some of which are a couple of thousand years long and some of which are ages long, right? Like there's the stories of the rings, the three, the nine and the... I mean, less so than the Dwarven Rings, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it's kind of, it's the story of Aragorn, which, you know, goes for a very long time back to, is it Beren? No, it's not Beren and Luthien. Yeah, it's Beren anyway, and Luthien. It is Beren. So, so you've got the story, like Beren and Luthien, uh, which you know, stretches out through Numenor and then eventually into Aragorn. You've got the kind of multi-age story of the elves kind of focusing on Galadriel, Celeborn, etc. And then you've got the stories of the hobbits. And there's, there's these three time scales and they all have to resolve in an, in a sort of tonality that's appropriate to that time, uh, time scale, right? So the elf story has to be a story of grief. And the man story has to be a story ultimately of a sort of, tr- not quite triumph, but close to triumph. And the hobbit story has to be a story of a sort of return to a bucolic home, right? Which is, I think, the emphasis of that, I'm home in that last line, which is a deeply, it's, for me, it's always dripped with nostalgia, this kind of, now what do I do? You know, all the greatest moments of my life are behind me. I don't, I don't disagree there. I think Tolkien is very much trying to fit stories of his ideal, idyllic life mm. uh, into the greater context where the world is a much more dangerous place with big events happening, even if the place that you prefer is quieter and more contented, but it needs to be protected. 
So there's uh, part of the question I'm trying to pose is if we think about genre as a technology or a technique, if you don't like the word technology, one of the things that we could say about Lord of the Rings in particular is that Tolkien is essentially setting down the techniques of a genre that he's inventing as he goes. And a significant number of, of books have kind of tried to do something similar since in, the, in fantasy, uh, having a kind of epic story and also a personal story. And do you think that do you think that people have developed the kind of the ending as a result, the kind of uh, having these different levels of epicness and much more personal stories and kind of interweaving them a little more carefully throughout the books? I definitely think that the technique has been distilled. Like mm. I, I acknowledge that, you know, this is a long story and with a very long resolution. In fact, mm. it has a second climax. And I think that over the last hundred years, uh, it's definitely been distilled and refined. I definitely mm-hmm. would not recommend Lord of the Rings to a newcomer to the genre today. I might have, you know, mm-hmm. 10, 20 years ago, but mm-hmm. there are plenty of better reads. That mm-hmm. said, I do still think that Lord of the Rings is an important foundational text. And functionally, this resolution. I think it does work. I think that it does marry those timescales together. Does it do it perfectly? No. A second climax does feel a bit clunky sometimes. And I don't think you see that very often. But just before Mm -hmm. we started recording, I was looking at my bookshelves looking for maybe another example of a good ending. For me, the good ending is such table stakes that I don't recall many of them Mm. all i can recall is the ones that don't work yeah it's interesting you say that i had the similar struggle with the bad ending and i realized that my experience with bad endings is usually that i and we'll talk more about this later obviously but it's usually i come out of the theater or put the book down and i'm like what the hell was that and then i complain about it for a week and then forget about it so actually i had to also go through my bookshelf and my letterbox just to try and figure out what the hell was i going to talk about in terms of a bad ending but I agree with you. I think, oh, well, I think I agree with you to a certain extent. I do think a really good ending can leave you, I don't know, changed. Sure. And I, and I think it should, right? Like the action to that point is, it is important, but a good ending should make a statement. For me, I think Lord of the Rings definitely makes, it makes several statements, whether or not you agree with them. Like you, you may come out and say, what the hell was that? But uh, I definitely think that Tolkien set out to make a statement and he does it pretty successfully. I also read an essay, I think it might have been in the edition of Lord of the Rings that I had or something I read afterwards. Specifically, the the industrial. Start, the, the, uh, there was a lot of, you know, hidden fifth columns, whatever, fear in England in, in <clears throat> during World War Two, And like, I don't know if they had the same fears in World War One. It's been a while since I looked at the home front stuff, but people assumed he wrote it because of that. Yeah, but what I'm getting at is is that assumption makes a lot of sense in a world where the industrialization depicted in the book is just part of the broad epistemological background of the era. Like World War II is not the six years between 39 and 45. World War II is a kind of fundamental experience of the first half of the century and it's dominated by industrialization. So it's, you know, people are asking on what is on one level a dumb question, but at the same time, you know, 
it is about World War Two. It's just not explicitly about World War Two, and it's about World War Two at the same time as it's about World War One and the interwar period and the complexities of, of you know, post-industrial revolution Britain. Like it's you know, it's the vibe, man. <laughs> well, Tolkien was a luddite and was sort of anti any kind of technology, as far progress, as I can tell. Right? Side side note: I want to just play a little bit of a part here. In can we just maybe redeem the luddites a little bit? Like everyone thinks of the luddites as this kind of weird old guy standing in a forest going. No, I don't like it. But actually, I just want to point out that the original Luddites were like hardcore radical trade union activists who recognised that the frames they were breaking were going to destroy their lives. Yep. So, like, just want to put that out there. It's yeah. not hobbits. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> that's, my that's what on history Byron, it and he actually spoke in favour of the frame breakers yeah. in the House of Lords. No, so, I think they're great. I think the Luddites were awesome, like really far-sighted, knew what they were on about. And maybe if we'd listened then, we'd have better lives now. Certainly, like the longer I work in tech, the more Luddite mm. sympathetic I get, actually. <laughs> I just wanted to note, I think, that Tolkien agreed with you that World War II was a pervasive influence on his text. But, you know, he points out in his, in his foreword to Lord of the Rings that he didn't write allegory once he says he's grown to casually hate it or something like that ever since he could be aware of its influence uh and i think that's important right he never denies its influence but uh it's that it's just an influence it's like lord of the rings is not a story about the war about either of the two wars of the first half of the 20th century. It's well, yeah, in the same, like in the opposite way to the way that something like uh, Animal Farm is explicitly allegorical, right? Well, of like, course. And that's that, I think that's what he's up against there is the people like to read allegory into things. Yeah, yep, agree. So, Nick, what are your nominations for good endings? Yeah, I thought a lot about this. Originally, I had listed a text that I will not name because I've talked about it too much. And I was just going to run with that. But that's when I wrote the first version of this chunk, you know, way back, I don't know, six months ago, whenever we were originally thinking about doing it. And since then, I've reread a book that I have talked about a little bit and I think is an absolutely excellent trilogy, which is The Three-Body Problem. Uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of the author's name and I apologize in advance, but I think it's uh, Shikshin Liu. I don't know. Anyway, it's a Chinese sci-fi trilogy and I've just finished reading it for the second time and it's an interesting one because I couldn't put it down for the first time and I don't know if you guys have ever had this with a really good trilogy when you come back to read it again you are shocked to find events taking place in you know a book that you thought maybe they took place in the second book but they actually took place in the first book on the reread and it was that the reread was a bit like that I could actually sort of now, you know, now that I knew the story, I could feel the divisions in the trilogy and I could feel the different thematic concerns of the three books, which just was not available to me on the first read. In, my, in the first read, it all just got jumbled up in my head. Now, the kind of broad story of Three-Body Problem uh, is a really interesting one and it is being adapted by the two awful men who adapted Game of Thrones, so expect it to show up on Netflix and be garbage. Can but- they just like be put out to pasture? Oh, I really wish they would. Luckily, the Chinese have also adapted it. So there's actually, it's going to be really interesting. And there are two concurrent adaptations of this book series being made, one by Tencent in China. You can watch the first 30 episodes of it on YouTube in 4K with English subtitles for free. And another one being written by Ben Hoff and Weiss whatever the names are, those two guys from Game of Thrones for Netflix, which just looks like it's going to be a jumbled mess by comparison. Anyway, 
The broad story of three-body problem, going back to allegory, uh, this time I read the preface and Liu in the preface explicitly says, I wanted part of this story to be about climate change. So he is going for a kind of quite deliberate allegory in a number of different ways. But the broad story is this, during the Cultural Revolution... Yu Wenxi uh, is the daughter of a, an academic who is killed by the Red Guards. And as a result of being essentially ostracized for her relationship to a, a counter-revolutionary, she is kind of pushed further and further away, but kind of ends up working on a SETI project out in the boondocks of China. And as part of the SETI project, sends a communication to an alien species later revealed to be called the Trisolarans because they come from Alpha Centauri, which in Chinese is called three stars, not two stars. So Trisolarans, Alpha Centaurians. And this kicks off a range of events that go from, you know, 1967 all the way through to the literal heat death of the universe. So it's millions and billions of years worth of narrative. And the kind of overriding theme of this story is that once you've made a mistake, like revealing the existence of Earth to an alien species, you will spend the rest of your life trying to catch up for that mistake. And it's, it's a little bit like, you know, as I say, he's deliberately writing about climate change. So there's an element here of we've made the mistake. Now we will spend the rest of our lives trying to outpace our own destruction, but that destruction will never stop coming. And right at the end, there are two humans left, Yun Tianming and Cheng Xin. And... No, sorry, Yun Tianming is not there. Cheng Xin and another guy who was a scientist on another ship, doesn't really matter. Point is, there's two people left. They're living in a tiny pocket universe. They have gone through terrible catastrophe after terrible catastrophe to get here. And they're not the two who are fated to end up together, which is... And they were not the two that were fated to end up together. So... Uh, Cheng Xin was kind of going to this planet 200 light years away from Earth to meet Yong Tianming after they'd been separated in you know, 2005. And at the very last second, something catastrophic happens that just makes it impossible for them to meet. And it happens by accident with no warning. And she realizes uh, you know, moments later that, that the laws of relativity means that by the time she gets out of the trap she's just fallen into, he will have been dead for 18 million years. And there's just nothing that anyone can do to stop it. And they eventually get out of the trap and they find that they've left a little tiny pocket universe for them and they get in the pocket universe. And so it's this kind of thwarted anti-Adam and Eve myth, which I think is really interesting because they're the last two humans left alive, but they're not in a Garden of Eden, really. They're in a bunker and they don't know what's going to happen when they get out of it. And then right at the end, they get a message that says, attention all the pocket universes. You've taken enough matter out of the universe. We've hit the tipping point. If you don't pull every drop of matter back into the universe, the universe will not collapse. There won't be a second big bang and it won't start again. It'll just keep spreading until everything is dead. And then they're sort of sitting here and there's a point where the literal credits for the universe roll. So like every species that survived gets a little, like a little, it's hard to explain, but imagine like a set of credits rolling and it's just the names of all the species that have survived, which is kind of a weird joke and kind of cool. And so there's this elongated scene where the two of them and the sort of android robot that's been keeping them company slowly dismantle the pocket universe and start dumping all the mass out of the door into the universe itself. And you never, the camera, the kind of quote unquote camera, never leaves the pocket universe. It never goes back out the door. You don't see where the matter is being dumped. And the last thing that happens is they step through the door and they leave a small computer hard drive with the history of humanity on it. 
and they leave a little tiny fishbowl that's a sort of self-managing ecosystem. And then they turn the lights out and that's the end. And I love it. I absolutely love it because it doesn't like in, you know, the kind of the grand arc of this story is humans can't survive. And the final moments of this story offer up the possibility that they don't. We don't know what happens outside the door. Maybe they step outside the door and immediately collapse into two dimensions and die because by this point, the entire universe is two dimensional. Maybe they find a planet they can live on. Maybe every other species that has its own pocket universe has not heeded the call and the universe is going to die like a permanent heat death. It's No one knows. There's no resolution available. But the important thread of the story is resolved, which is that at the final moment, that kind of urge to survive continues. And right down to the point where they are the last two people alive at the very end of the universe. And it's just incredible. It gives us no easy answers, but it resolves the kind of main thrust of the entire story. It manages to boil the epic down to what ultimately comes down to a decision between two people. And it just, yeah, the first time I read it, and I wrote this down while you were talking, Dave, because I was thinking a little bit about what makes a good ending while you were talking about the resolution versus climax. And I've, I don't know if you guys have ever come across this, but like a book that leaves you unable to read another book for a little while, like a book you have to recover from. And ironically enough, a book you have to recover from because it's got a good ending triggers all of the things I talked about in the intro about there being no such thing as closure, because actually in a way you have to grieve a really good book because you want the book to keep going and it ends. And this is how I felt the first time I read the three body problem. I was like, that's not enough. I need more. But not in a sort of, I need more because the ending was bad, but actually I need more because the ending was so good. Like, how could it be that good? How can it be over? And so like, for me, that's a good ending, right? Like it, it boils the themes of the whole book down to something that is not simple, but feels simple. And I enjoy that it provides narrative closure, but not necessarily full closure. Like it still leaves a few questions for you to ponder, but the questions themselves are kind of pulling in the same direction as the broad themes of the book. So in a way, it doesn't matter how you answer them. Uh, The book gives you the space to answer or just ponder the questions yourself. So for me, that's the ending I want to put out there as a good ending. Yeah, I'm going to talk about one later on that has that, you know, people grieved that it ended and Mm. it's not in my good endings thing for reasons, Mm. but I think that's a good analysis. I'm just going to mention some and I'm not going to go into as much detail as you did because I've got a couple, but for my good endings, it's Casablanca, which for me is perfection in two hours. And Nick it disputed, is a perfect film. Nick I'm disputed like, that it was genre. I'm like, no, it's noir. I'm sticking with that. It's on my noir list. Yeah, noir is definitely mm, – noir is a style, I would argue, that can be applied to a few different genres. Yes. One is detective genre. Yeah. What is the genre for Casablanca if it's not noir? <laughs> noir is a style. It's, it'd be an intrigue. A war, a, a war film? Yeah. Okay. Intrigue, noir. So, but yeah, so for those who haven't seen it, it's got Humphrey Bogart loses the girl deliberately and he and Claude Rains as the corrupt Frenchman in Casablanca walk off into the fog and he says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, which is a very famous line. And it's basically the perfect ending to a perfect movie. And the line that's just before that is Renault saying, round up the usual suspects. And that, of course, is another famous line, which isn't uh, the title of one of my other favourite movies, which is a neo-noir mystery, which has a fabulous twist ending. And I'm not going to go discuss that, but I just wanted to mention that's where the title of that movie comes from. But Casablanca is, it's got intrigue and it's got a noir setting. It's got an ill-fated romance. It's a wartime resistance hero. It's got a cynical American expat. It's got dodgy, corrupt French police chief. It's got the MacGuffin letters of transit, all kinds of shenanigans. And it's set in a bar with a fab musician. 
It's got uh, Sydney Green Street playing yeah. an enormously fat. Ah. He's the guy who he's like the trinket dealer, yeah, um, and, wearing a fez and talking yes. in a very funny voice like this. It's yes. just fantastic. He's it's great. Just so it's, good. And so I was if you haven't like, watched it, if just, you haven't watched it, you need to stop listening right now and go and watch it and then come back in two hours. There is no canon in literature, but this is a canonical text. Absolutely. And look, I, there's a lot of, I, as I've mentioned before, like a lot of genres I like, you know, crime and noir and romance and fantasy and sci-fi, but Casablanca is always at the top of my list of my favourite things because it is just perfection. So one of the reasons that I was sort of pushing you on it not being genre is I think part of the problem with reading Casablanca in the present is you forget one really incredibly important aspect of Casablanca, which was that when it was written, America was not winning the war. And when they began making the film, America was not winning the war. America hadn't entered the war when they started making it. it. But the war was absolutely not being won. And by the so between when they started making it as a pretty much a propaganda piece to get the United States into the war. And when it was they released, were making it, when they were making it, well, Pearl Harbor happened during the production of it, but when it was released, the sort of five or six key battles that, that are kind of broadly understood as the turning point in the war and at the time felt like a turning point, including Midway, had already taken place. So it's such a strange text because it straddles this kind of historical line where the purposes for which it was made kind of it didn't keep pace with them. So it's easy for us to try and slot it into a genre, but actually it's a text that at the moment of its production really, like, it was kind of a propaganda piece and kind of a bit of just kind of entertainment ultimately. Well, I, um, when the 50th anniversary edition came out and I watched a lot of the documentaries for it, they were saying it was just a studio film. They just mm. made it in like eight weeks or whatever yeah. and then went on to the next one. They had no idea it was going to be what it was, you know, mm. and I think that's really interesting. Like, so you're right, there was a propaganda element and Paul Henry, who plays the, you know, the resistance hero, actually says to Rick, welcome back to the fight, which is a mm. reference to America not being part of the war. And they then all just, you know, moved on to their next studio film. And I checked, uh, Bogart had done the year before, he had done The Maltese Falcon, but he mm. didn't do The Big Sleep until after like 1945, 1946. So he's well and truly started his noir period, but whether you say you think it's noir or not, it's this really was part oh, no, of making it's it. It's totally noir. Yeah. I just it's don't noir. think noir is a genre. genre. Yeah. <laughs> well, in all intrigues, anyway. a genre. Suspense sure. is a genre. Right, but not noir. So just to return to the ending, I think there's obviously a convergence with Nick's satisfaction with a three-body problem in that it leaves something open. Yeah, Mm. yeah. And look, there was different endings that they tested. I don't know if they filmed them, but one was Ilsa leaving her husband and staying with him, but, you know, that was, you know. That's not satisfactory. No, it's not satisfactory. It was him, Rick dying, not satisfactory. So the way they did it with... Elsa leaving with husband and Rick joining the fight, That's that was the best outcome, you know, and it was very satisfying. There's yeah. something interesting there about what, like, the story concludes but the characters go on. That's a really important thing of a good ending, I think. I think Returning to the Lord of the Rings, that is the function of Sam's closing line, mm. well, I'm back, mm. because he's back to continue the story and... The appendices of Lord of the Rings are important, but they are not part of the narrative, and I will die on that hill. Yeah. Yeah. He goes on to be mayor. Yeah, well, that part is alluded to because Frodo says, and of course you'll be mayor, blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't actually happen. But the fact that 
Sam says, well, I'm back, that is the indicator that things are going to go on. Uh, I also just want to mention a TV series that I thought had a really good ending. Now, it's Jessica Jones. It had three seasons on Netflix. I think they intended to have more, but the license got pulled. I have issues with Kilgrave in season one, but as a shaped series, three seasons, it had a really good trajectory. And the third season with her adopted sister, Trish, wanting to be a hero and have a really simplified view of goodies and baddies and wanting to be a goodie, and it actually leads her to do really bad things and leading to her downfall, it was actually really satisfying. I wish they'd got an extra season, but ending where it did, I thought it was great and it had closure and it was like, yeah, that works. Now, obviously Jessica Jones is a comic and comics are ongoing and blah, blah, blah. But in terms of a three season arc, I think it worked really well. I don't know if anyone has thoughts on that. I think each arc concludes satisfyingly as they well, do. right? But I thought that as the overall arc to the Netflix series, I thought that was a really good ending with Trish and Jill going, oh, was I the baddie after all? Like she's still at the a, end doesn't understand there's more to it than that. It's a bit of a lost art, The I mean, the trilogy problem, I guess, which is that I remember, you know, being in my early teens and everyone being obsessed with definitions. So, you know, an English teacher asking us what was a trilogy and what the class eventually came up with was the notion of three books that stand alone, but like stand alone as books or stories, but are still read together. And the kind of classic example, I think, is the original Star Wars trilogy, where each of the films could be watched in isolation. Uh-huh. but also form a story together. But it's a little bit of a lost arc, especially in the age of the kind of fantasy doorstopper, you know, endless series uh, where each book is not standalone. In fact, each, each book is just another 35 chapters in an ongoing arc that refuses to have any kind of... So do you think that modern trilogies are more akin to Lord of the Rings, which <laughs> Tolkien intended to be released as a single volume? I think some of them are. My reread of Three Body Problem has convinced me that it is, in fact, a proper trilogy with, well, again, I actually don't think that's a fair definition. It is a trilogy in which each of the three books stands alone, whether that makes it better than a sort of trilogy of stuff that's really just a serial, I don't care. But it is a bit of a lost art because I think it is harder to write three books that stand alone or write three series that stand alone but also contribute to a broader arc in a satisfying way. Whether that makes it better, I don't know. I agree with you. It probably is a bit of a lost start with the increasing commercialization of fiction. First of all, people are not encouraged to make things stand alone. I'll get to that a bit later. Can I just mention one other thing quickly? Orphan Black, this is under my interesting endings and it also ties in what Dave was saying about climax versus resolution. This was a great spec fic sci-fi show and when they got to the ending, the mystery was resolved and then the final, I think, hour was about the clones fitting back into their everyday lives after everything they'd been through and being changed. And a lot of people felt it was anticlimactic, but I'm like, no, you've already had your climax. This is the resolution. And I actually really liked the humanness of it all. You know, Sarah trying to sit for her, whatever it's called, the high school certificate equivalent. And she got up and walked out because she was just too stressed. So there was no perfect cookie cutter ending for them. And everything they'd been through had been very dehumanising. So this was very humanising. They still had each other and that bond and life wasn't perfect, but it was going forward. And I think that was really important. And I actually really liked that as an ending for me. That was very satisfying. And I mm. was really surprised when people went, oh, it was so anticlimactic. I'm like, well, no, you've had your climax. The big bad guy was defeated. This is this people is reestablishing their lives. This is one of the things I find interesting about good ending versus bad ending. And in fact, when we get to my bad ending, Dave's actually been privy to a discussion between me and a mutual friend of ours, Nat, who thinks it's a bad ending. And I 
was trying to defend it as a good ending, but now I'm going to put it up as my example of a bad ending. I say all of this just to kind of point out something I find really intriguing, which is that people really disagree on what's good and what's bad. Uh, like really disagree. I've seen, yep. I've seen people talk about endings I think are terrible as really good, and I've seen people talk about the exact opposite. So, yeah, I think part of maybe what I'm interested in here is also why do people disagree, but I don't know if we'll get to that. Well, let's move on now to what makes a bad ending. To paraphrase Tolstoy, uh, Oof. good endings are all like every bad ending is bad in its own way. So building on our chosen texts and others, we're going to explore, is this true? Or are there some rules that will let you avoid a bad ending and what makes a bad ending? Wow. So that, that, that quote from Tolstoy is fantastic. That's exactly how I feel about good endings. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, I'll start with you this time. So as I said, I really struggle with this bit. Uh, even though this is my idea, uh, I just all of the bad endings immediately fled from my head the second I had to write this section. So I ended up googling bad endings. And I what did I that found too. Was that, yeah, and I ended up finding a lot of bad endings genre fiction. Yeah, just found a bunch of endings I really liked on those lists. So uh, put me back to square one. I think the archetypal bad ending was Snow Crash, which we all kind of found as we were discovering Neil Stevenson back in the. I it's guess late probably, 90s, it's probably early 2000s. his best known text and potentially his best text. Yeah, but it's the worst ending because the story just stops. Weirdly enough, it actually fits one of those definitional criteria we've come up with, which Most is like the story every concludes, but the characters... just stops. Yeah, but like, you know, it fits that kind of story concludes, but characters go on idea that we've come up with, but it's still shit. Like it just... It, yeah, I mean, you definitely need to resolve something, right? Uh, I just I dislike Snow Crash so much that I just... It's a bit too cool even, for its own good. That's Yeah. Isn't that everything um, to do with Stevenson? Absolutely, when he's not just telling you how smart he is. But the I think part of the problem is that the story stops and it doesn't step through the consequences. It actually, it has a climax, but it has no resolution. It doesn't step through the consequences of what they've done to the world. So even though the characters keep going, nothing's happened in the world. Which is insane because the linguistic virus has changed the world. Exactly. Like it's, it's been kind stopped. of bonkers. It hasn't been reversed. Yeah, it's just bonkers. And he, look, he's, he gets a little better at endings, but he's still not great at them. I think the best one of his that I've read was uh, Anathem. Like in terms of the ending, it resolves and it's quite good. Although now that we're talking about it, it's just the linguistic virus over again. He can't write a short book. No, he really can't. It's because he's got to tell you how clever he is. Another one that wound up like as an almost was Monkey Island 2, which the first time I played it, I thought it was kind of garbage. The problem is I now really love it. Like actually, as far as an It's an All a Dream ending goes, it's a pretty good one and it's cute. And it does something really neat that I'm not sure they're fully in control of, which is that it establishes a connection between Guybrush and, and LeChuck, like just perfectly. A connection that just intri- like instinctively makes sense uh, as you play, because they've got this kind of silly little snot-nosed teenage kind of relationship and then to sort of just to have it revealed that they're actually brothers is kind of well, it's great like, i'd like really to like it. take this opportunity to point out that the definition at the start said a good ending does not cast the whole story as a hoax well, a yeah. well what I, I love about it really is that it was all a dream and then or was it as yeah uh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> love it there like it's double ambiguity i think it's great yeah and for a funny little kind of lucas arts point and click game it's brilliant but I want to, I'm just going to flag flip that when you did say that I wrote down in my notebook, hoax or trap. And I want to talk later when we get to the discussion about the distinction between a hoax and a trap in that definition, because where does a twist fit between hoax and trap? But let's come back to that. I'm just going to flag that and put a pin in it. There's a couple of kind of golden age TV endings that really left me cold. I didn't 
care about the ending of Breaking Bad. Everyone raved about it, but actually I sort of, I just watched through to the end so I could say that I'd finished it. Didn't I don't just, really remember, I remember what happened. Did he die of cancer rather than get, you know? No, I think he gets shot. He I gets can't shot. even no, remember. I can't remember. Yeah, but I just, I didn't, I don't know why, but it didn't, I didn't care. Like actually for me, the most important moments that were Hank sitting on the toilet and he realises that Walter White is Heisenberg. Yeah, I was going to say, I read an article about how Hank is actually the hero of the story. Yeah, but like that's the most interesting moment in the back, you know, third of the, the series. And I just sort of didn't care that much about anything after that. And Mad Men is another one that, that kind of left me cold. Everyone praised it like crazy, but actually it never quite fitted for me. Like the, I know that it, what's meant to take away is meant to be that he went to a meditation retreat and then came up with the I want to buy the world of Coke ad campaign. But that didn't, it's not, I didn't walk out of that show thinking that's what happened. I just felt like they just put a really existing ad over the top of John Hamm meditating and it, was, it just was really clunky. So like there's a few that I just don't, like, you know, and everyone thinks those two are great endings. I just don't think they're particularly great. But the one that I've actually picked is from a book by Joe Haldeman, which I've also just reread. Uh, so he wrote three books in this, from the late 70s through to the 90s. He was a Vietnam vet. And the three books were called Forever War, Forever Peace and Forever Free. And it's a bit weird because the second book that he wrote is actually not a sequel to the first book, but the third book that he wrote is a sequel. And so the one I want to talk about <laughs> so is Forever Free, which is... has no idea what he's doing to start No, with. I suspect that what happened was... So he's a really interesting author and I think everyone should probably read the three books because they're really interesting books. He came back from the Vietnam War and he tried to write a book about a never-ending war that was set at sublight but relativistic speeds. So the kind of overarching push in the book is that, you know, when you leave in your ship to go and fight a war with the, the bad guys, who in this case were called Taurans, like bulls, like Taurus, when you arrive, you have no idea if the relativistic speeds at which you've both been traveling put you light years ahead of them in technology terms or you light years behind them in technology terms. And But not only that, but everybody's spending like six months on a ship, but actually hundreds of years are passing in real time. So they all have insane amounts of money and they come back to an earth they no longer recognize. So nobody remembers after a little while why anyone's actually fighting the war. So it's very much an allegory and very much an allegory for his experience in Vietnam. But he does a whole bunch of really clever things with it where he, you know, and in a way, look, some of it will read as clunky. He's got some, he's got some views about homosexuality that I think were quite liberal and progressive in 1979, but read as extremely outdated now, even though I wouldn't call it a, like, it's not an aggressively homophobic book, but it maintains some, it makes makes some arguments that we would now understand as homophobic or mildly homophobic. So it's an interesting artifact in that regard. But at the end of the, you know, the war finishes and they all get together and everything's great. And then in the, the third book, which is the sequel <laughs> to the first book, because the second book was a, a spiritual successor. It wasn't a direct sequel. He, he wanted ah. to play with some, <laughs> he wanted to play with some similar ideas, but he didn't want to write with the same characters in the same world. Okay. And what about you, Dave? Well, I don't know if I can follow that. So <laughs> <laughs> I actually want to talk about, uh, not an ending. And it's actually a bit about how, how an author can paint themselves into a bit of a corner. So I really enjoyed the King Killer Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss, beginning with Name of the Wind and then A Wise Man's Fear. The thing is, it's a trilogy and it's been, it's got George R. R. Martin-itis in that uh-huh. he is painted himself into a corner. He said, this is definitely going to be a trilogy. I might write some more stuff in this world, but like we are dealing with Quoth's story and Quoth's story has to finish at the end of the book. Problem is that 
he's got so much ground to cover in the third book uh, and it'll be, you know, 2,000 pages if he tries to squeeze everything in it. He needs to wrap up a whole bunch of different threads which are sort of indicated to, to converge but I think that it will be rushed and unsatisfactory in that. So, he's you know, he has to resolve Quoth's personal relationship with Dana. I think she dies. That's sort of the implication. He has to deal with Quoth's engagement with the epic, with the Chandrian. There's ongoing deals with the university. And there's the whole, what is this king killer thing? He apparently started a war. So maybe they have to resolve the war as well. It's a lot. And structurally, I think part of the problem is with its narrative conceit, which is Kvothe's story is practically over at the beginning of the book. He is some sort of, you know, half-dead veteran trying to fade into the background despite being, I think, only 25. But that's almost a function of the very rich life he has purportedly lived already, I think. So I'm willing to give it that. But there's so much here to wrap up and to converge the, these two different storylines of his, you know, his teenage years un, until the point of the outer shell of this story within the story. I think that, honestly, he just needs to admit it can't be done. Rothfuss has essentially done what George R. Martin has done and gone off and written other things, which, fair enough, you need to refresh yourself, give yourself some room. I th- honestly, I think he just needs to admit that it, can't be done the rest can't be done in a book and just give himself room to to finish the story i don't know where he can go with that outer shell there's an implication obviously that once he's told the story up to this point he's gotta go on right well maybe it's a hard one isn't it because that outer shell is like literally two guys in a bar and it's a unclear how long they've been talking, but it's days, not months. Yeah, it's about three days so far. Yeah, and nothing happens in the pub in that time, really. Like, So in a way, that outer shell is not a story, but it has some strange claims on being a story. Yeah, uh, yeah. so, it's, so it's some things clumsy. do happen, right? Each day actually has, has some actual action. I don't know if the action has any real stakes. Like the idea is that it's supposed to provide some forward motion. So, you know, there's some human possessed by a demon that actually causes, uh, kills one of the characters in the outer shell and that sort of drives a bit of the narrative. Then there's the bandits that were actually lured in by Bast try to, you know, all of this is try to rev Kvothe up and get him out of this slump that he's in. And the second book finishes with this moment seems to imply that Kvothe is starting to wake up. But what does that mean for the rest of the storytelling? Hopefully it ends like the like the intro of Di- or the ending cinematic of Diablo 2, I think it is, where the old guy dies in the cell and the demon walks out. Yes, <laughs> like, something like, like that. That would be pretty cool. So, yeah, don't know how this can become a good satisfactory ending. Yeah, which is I had a I had one of those on my list too. This funny little show called From that had um, Mackay Pfeiffer in it, among other people, but felt very much like Lost. It was this kind of town that you couldn't escape. Oh, wow. and I had Lost a... on my list and I took it off. <laughs> yeah, that's a I terrible had... ending. I've watched almost no Lost except for that last episode, and it was that's atrocious. funny. I took Lost off my list because I realised as much as I thought of it as a bad ending, 
I also hadn't watched any of Lost past the end of the second season, so I just don't know if it's a bad ending. But nothing I read about nothing I've read about it convinces me that it's good. The entire show was set in purgatory the whole time. Yeah, which is so annoying because people were saying that. So that that's what makes me think it's a terrible show is because at the end of the first season, people were saying this is purgatory. And, you know, the Benioff and Weiss of 20 years ago being Abrams, Abrams. and Lindelof were yeah. like, mm, it's not purgatory. And then seven years later, it's purgatory. It's well, like, you dickheads. That, you I mean, absolute dickheads. That's Abrams. Uh, oh, magic box in a, awful. In, in a nutshell, right? I don't know what it is. <sighs> and the problem is you get to the end and you're like, Oh, I don't, I don't know what it is. I guess I'm just going to have to go season with everyone's favourite the, theory. Season three was all the flash forwards into their lives once they got off the island. So I guess that was all just, you know. It was a dream. A dream? Like, I just, it was terrible. Oh, my God, both of them. I think that's I, on us ugh. as, like, as a collective audience. Like, we just need to. Stop to, watching their garbage. Yeah, stop <laughs> watching, watching their garbage and telling them to fuck off. I mean, yeah. uh, like, and it's also, like, technical quirks of their films as well like oh, which are very boring and annoying yeah i think nolan had one particularly good movie which is memento and then since then he's just done really annoying things well i mean look i we all fell in love with batman for a while but yeah so oh, I, had inception, <laughs> I had inception on my list of really bad endings too because it's it takes all the interesting ambiguity part of nolan's problem right is that he thinks the world is a series of binary decisions he wants to quantify the qualitative in boring ways so with the spinning top it's like it's either a dream or it's not a dream and that's not ambiguity that's just i don't know schrodinger's bad ending like it's just terrible and everyone thinks it's amazing it's like no that's not amazing. Actually, amazing is not hinting that the obvious dream is a dream. Well, like, the, the, I mean, the, for me, the question there is who actually cares? Like everything yeah. is resolved too much. So mm. the ambiguity is just a wish. Yeah, it's very boring. So just to wrap up on Name of the Wind, I think that if we, if we admit that the series can't be done in three books, just make it an ongoing thing. Right. I think that, I mean, making series in TV is dangerous and, you know, with universes and never ending things that get cut off before they can be resolved. But I reckon it would be pretty cool that if this was done as an anime, actually, it would definitely watch that. And, you know, it could be a Shonen Jump goes on forever anime and I'd kind of be okay. With that. Well, it's also, that's what Moorcock did with Elric, right? Yeah. Like he just kept writing more and more. Yeah. Elric's and great. There yeah. is an actual ending. It's very saga right? Each book is, and then he did this, and then he did this, right? No, yeah, no, no. which is fine because actually, it, you know, my favourite Moorcock quote was, if you can't write a book in 24 hours, it's not worth writing. <laughs> I was it, in the 60s. Yeah, they just take a shit ton of drugs and keep typing. Like, it was great. I mean, look, is it for everyone? No. Do they stand up? Not all of them. Most of them, in fact, don't. And I, yeah, I just think he like, does really interesting things with Elric. Exactly. Like, I, I have a cool idea, so I'm just going to shoehorn Elric into it and it'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. And yeah, like he doesn't write high art. Like he, he nah. definitely had... It's pulp garbage and it's great. Yeah, exactly. We, not everything needs to be capital literature. And I'm not going to say it's guilty pleasures, right? Because we don't feel guilty about it, do we, Nick? No, such no not even a little bit. <laughs> I'm not an Elric fan, but you can enjoy Just, them all you want. Exactly. <clears throat> like, yeah, we know they're garbage. So what about you, Flip? 
Oh, this was really hard, as you both said, because so many books and series are cancelled before they get to the end. That is a bad ending. <laughs> so, well, you've talked about something unfinished, but so look, Battlestar Galactica. I love the show. I've talked about it in our one of our sci-fi episodes and also in our Beyond the Modern Myth episodes had a very long rant about why the ending didn't work for me and why it's terrible. So I'm not going to go into that now, but I wanted to flag that because it was a terrible ending. So I'm going to go there, Nick. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. You can pretend that it doesn't exist all you want, but it was an absolute shocker. The movie was terrible and the ending was just dismal. And honestly, the previous movies had supernatural and magical elements, but they just had this whole alien plotline that was ridiculous and insulting. And Kate Blanchett chewing the scenery, maybe it was her childhood dream to be in an Indiana Jones movie or something, but for a fantastic actress, she was just appalling. And, and she's I, bad. She's really bad. Yeah. I was reminded she was in the, the Russell Crowe Robin Hood. Oh, she? Uh, oh, and it's just. terrible and she's terrible. Yeah. I don't watch Robin Hood movies in general because they're all bad. Yeah. Other than Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham. There's definitely... <laughs> There was definitely a thing with his historical fictions or historical epic fictions in the 2000s that I guess came off the back of Gladiator, which is yeah. why Russell Crowe is in so many of them. But, but nothing reached, yeah, nothing reached the heights of Gladiator, which can I just say, Gladiator stands up. Like, it does. We watched, you know, we watched it bottle. again recently. Yeah, really good. Like it shouldn't, but my God, it's great. Anyway, <laughs> back to Indiana Jones, and I noticed you derailed it, Nick. But Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I don't even know why they bothered bringing Indy back after no, so I don't long know either. just for that terrible movie. I mean, Harrison Ford had refused to be in a movie for so long. And I think he's within his rights. He refused the Star yeah. Wars series for so long. He refused Indiana Jones because he didn't want to go back to them. And then he did for that shit movie and with a terrible ending. I'm so, sure he's embarrassed. So the only that, thing I will say, and I'm not defending it, but in its defense. It doesn't exist. Well, I know that I had said when it came out going, I don't even know why they went with aliens. There was pl certainly plenty of, you know, Nazis escaped to South America if they wanted to put it there. And then I read an article that Spielberg said after making Schindler's List he was never going to put Nazis on screen again. So yeah, I not in a, that. you know, like fair enough, you know, that makes yeah. sense. In which case there was other things that he could have done. But I read something just yesterday, like why did they – go with freaking Shia LaBeouf and certainly as Marion's son, which means she would have been about 16 when she had him, which is just terrible. Like if you work out the whole timeline, it's just appalling. But, you know, Short Round was right there. Yeah. Yeah, well, they would have had to give him a new name. Yeah, sure, but he already had a relationship with him. I mean, they just shouldn't have made the movie. No, they shouldn't like, have. They just shouldn't have. But then was, they could it, have then said it in a different part of the world, you know. Or if you want to make a, like, if you want to make a kind of jokey pulp 50s, just make a new hero. Like... Don't even put it in the same yeah, universe. It's, it's stupid. This is actually one of the problems with sequels is that there's a trend towards Dynasty, which, you know, mm. is actually really terrible. And it's part of the letdown of the last Star Wars movie, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we can argue whether or not some people think that Last Jedi was good. I had structural problems, but I think that Ryan Johnson goes out of his way to say, maybe we need to, you know, rethink what we want from our sequels and and Disney just goes, meh. There has to be more than I don't like Ryan Johnson. I think he's I think he gets accolades that he doesn't deserve from a broadly uncritical public. But I think there has to like the problem with it with Ryan Johnson and then JJ Abrams two attempts at the second and third new Star Wars movies is that they went to opposite extremes. Ryan Johnson decided that he was going to kill God and and 
Well, I don't care. Like, I just don't care. If you want to kill God, why bother making a story about God? Like, no, I, I don't. Movie, I don't think he was trying to kill God. Movie. I think he was oh, trying he, to do some interesting stuff. He came out and said as much. Like he didn't do it in he didn't say it in Nietzschean terms. But what he basically said was, I don't want to make it about the Skywalker. What are they called? Skywalker family. I don't want to make it about the you know the force is not just five people doing it. You know the force well, is not this. The force is not that. he made it about the What's... Skywalker about the Skywalker family. Like it was he was literally saying the Skywalker family were important. Yes, but they are not the be all and end all of all Jedi, or, let alone all force users. But collectively. The nine films could not decide whether the Jedi were monks, wizards, samurai, or just some people who figured out how to use the Force. That's garbage. It's garbage storytelling, and I don't care how... Like, again, what's the point of killing God? Because they didn't kill God properly in the story. He just went, I'm going to make sandwich for everyone, and it's shit. Like, it's just terrible. If you want to make a film for everybody about star magic users, just make a movie about... Star Magic uses. This should like, have been on your list, Nick. I just want to finish off my section. So I'm just going to mention Game of Thrones, biggest TV show of all time, mm. crashed and burned with its ending. We've discussed it before, but, you know, white men failing up. White men with uh-huh. no experience making any TV shows, getting like hundreds of millions of dollars from HBO yep. to make Game of Thrones. And, you know, their inexperience showed and their inability to write content that was already in a book showed. And the fact that the books that they were basing it on wasn't finished was a major flaw. <laughs> but mostly I just find shows disappointing. So many don't live up to the promising start, but they may not necessarily be bad. They're just unfinished or cancelled or half done. On that note, I'm going to move on to the next discussion point, which is how do we feel about sequel setups as an ending? A sequel is a work of literature, film, theatre, television, music or a video game that continues the story of or expands upon some earlier work. And I've got a few little definitions here and I didn't know all of these. I mean, I kind of knew, but I hadn't thought about them. A direct sequel is the most common approach, maybe resolving remaining plot threads or introducing a new conflict to drive the events of the second story. A legacy sequel is a work that follows the continuity of the original work but takes place further along the timeline, often focusing on new characters with the original ones still present in the plot. kind of like those ones myself. Uh, And a standalone sequel is a work set in the same universe yet has very little, if any, inspiration from its predecessor in terms of its narrative and can stand on its own without a thorough understanding of the series. And my least favourite is a spiritual sequel. It's a work inspired by its predecessor. It allegedly shares the same styles, genres and elements as its predecessor but has no direct connection at all. I think that last one is mostly a commercial marketing term more than an actual... Oh, it's terrible. Um, well, except in the example that I gave before of Forever Peace, which I actually stand by it as a really good spiritual sequel because it wants to take a similar starting point and toy with some similar ideas, but because he recognises he can't do it in the same world, he just doesn't and it works really well and when you read the two of them together they act as almost like two different thematic directions if if it's by the same author i wouldn't Mm. necessarily call it a spiritual sequel or spirituals i have seen things well they call it a spiritual successor if it's not by the same author and i've seen so many things referred to as spiritual successors and you're right it's a marketing term and i just loathe them anyway the world's full of sequels far too many in my opinion unlike some new content thanks but some are good most are unnecessary and many are appalling and i'm going to include the current batch of tv prequels in this discussion too if you want to go there so Mm. nick what are your thoughts the first thing I want to talk about, and I actually wrote this down while we were chatting just before about 
Dave's idea that Kvothe's story should be told as a series of new books without the kind of being bound by the three. And we're talking about Eric as well. I think it's interesting that people maybe get a little confused by serialization versus sequels. Yep. Like, like I think, and I think it's important to recognize that serials have been with us since, you know, broadcast media, if not before, right? And I'm kind of including the printing press as broadcast media there. Well, this is um, actually something that is almost a feature in the King Killer Chronicles. There's a series of stories with recurring characters, Tarball and the Great, right? Where mm. it's just, here's a here's another story about the daring do of this master wizard. And that's sort of set up as a parallel because there are starting to have both stories pop up in the same way. Yeah. And I think serialization has its own joys. And part of the joy of a serial is that it's not intended to have an ending. And you know that it has no ending. And in fact, the best serials kind of tell you this. You know, the Simpsons make the joke about how everything goes back to normal at the end of a sitcom, for example. Mm. Whereas a sequel, I think, has to have an end in mind. And when you hoodwink going back to hoax versus trap when you hoodwink your audience into believing you're producing a sequel when actually you're just producing a serial that's shit like that is going to set you up for something awful and i think that's marvel in a nutshell right they just want you to think everything's a sequel it's just they're just never going to stop making stuff we're all going to die and our funerals are going to be marvel themed because by that (laughs) point like Warner Brothers everything so i just want to put that out there because i think there's something there and I want to talk a bit about a text that I think plays a little bit with the distinction, which is I want to like, so Sam Mendes's James Bond movies are just fucking great full stop. And I will not argue this point. It's just true. But I are really they, like the Daniel Craig ones. Yeah, they're the Daniel okay. Craig they are ones. Really so, good. so one of the things that I really appreciate about them is that Quantum of Solace, which is usually regarded as the worst of the four, but actually I think it's a lot better than people give it credit for. And I actually think the worst of the four is definitely the one with uh, Spectre in it. It's a bad movie. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Quantum of Solace picks up in the second that that, uh, Casino Royale finishes. And it's kind of amazing because James Bond always starts with a bit of an in-media res move a little bit like indie does same sort of thing and there's always the third act of of the last story opens the first act of this story so to make the third act of the last story the literal third act of the last story was kind of awesome and sort of fits perfectly into that direct sequel and actually did set up this arc in sam mendez's originally i think was probably meant to be a trilogy judging by how well the three films are written and it works really well like i quite like that because at the end of quantum of solace you're not suspecting that there'll be a sequel and so it actually does this beautiful thing where the first moment you get a sense the story is continuing is when you're in the second film. And that's cool. Like there's no little hanging edges to kind of catch you. You don't feel like you're being marketed to. There's no post credit sequence garbage. Like you just go to a movie and you like it. And then two years later, you go to another movie and you get this little thrill because you realize it's the same movie. And that's cool. Like I really liked that. So that's, you know, one thing. But the other one, I like... The other, uh, you know, the other things I want to talk about here are Star Wars, obviously. And I want to use Revenge of the Sith as an example of just how prequels are maybe always garbage. Because I was watching Revenge of the Sith with Fair. my fight mate the other day. And uh, we got to the bit where Anakin, oh, you know, they execute Order 66, which, you know, is an obvious allusion to the devil. And it's so clumsy and bad writing. But that's not what I'm talking about. Because they execute Order 66. Everyone, all the Jedi die. And the film feels at that point like it's ending. And my father was getting tired and she hit pause to see how long was left in the film. And there was an hour to go after the film had effectively finished. And 
we were just we just looked at each other and the first words that came out of our mouths were how dare you like how dare you demand an additional hour of my life after you have already had a climax and a conclusion to this anodyne pile of garbage and it's the problem i think with prequels is they are so hard to write in such a way because the, pre- the problem with the prequel is the ending is prefigured. You know yeah. what the ending is. It's the bit that starts the film you already like. So at that point, it's not plot anymore. It's just logistics. Like you are just moving pieces around on a chessboard. Who wants to watch that? Like that is such a garbage way to come at storytelling. Just yeah. ban all prequels. Ban them, finish <laughs> them, stop them, no more. I yeah, have a side um, note to that though. I think Rogue One, which mm, is even in an even smaller quantum of mm, time, I think that did, worked okay. But that's because it was I characters it that really we didn't well. know. And yeah. the only thing that we knew they had to do was get the plans. And what yeah. was the, and what was the worst part? Uh, Leia turning up. Yeah, yeah. And actually, but no, I well, sort they, of even yeah, I didn't mind that. I was but, even willing to go with that a bit as well. Like, because one of the things there is it didn't reveal that it was doing those logistical moves until you were most of the way through them. And then you had a little moment to go, oh, that's cool. It actually did exactly what Quantum of Solace did, but in reverse. Like in the last five minutes after they've died on the planet and you're like, wow, that's really full on. Then it cuts to the inside of the Corellian Cruiser and you're like, I know where this is going. So you just have a little moment to feel recognized in a fun way after having watched a really good movie. But it's not trying to sell you anything because that film already exists. It's not trying to get you to turn on a new hope. It just, you know, wants you to know where it sits. I mean, fair enough. It layers a couple of seconds as opposed to an hour. But the thing is, logistics is definitely a problem with prequels. And that is also part of the problem with the King Killer Chronicles, right? You know that Kvothe ends up in a backwater town. Like, so we know what the end point is. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. You know he doesn't and- die during the adventures that they're going on. Yeah. Yeah, and it's kind of boring, right? Again, we've got a we have a really good pre like I'm thinking a thousand and one nights is the way to think mm. about what this story could be, but he doesn't seem to want to write a thousand and one nights, which is the problem, right? It might have been yeah. an inspiration, but he's definitely moved on from the idea. Another example I think of just a truly excellent way to play with the dimensions between sequel and serial is the Alien movies. In each one, it becomes a bit, well, in the first two, you know, it uses the same ending, which is Ripley winds up in hypersleep, drifting in space. That's a really cool way to pass the torch to a new director and a new team of writers. It's a little bit like one of those, I think they're called in America, exquisite corpses that Game yes, you play yes. where you, yeah, yeah. you write yeah. something and pass it on to the next person and then they write the next yeah. bit. Yeah. Or you draw half a picture and they yeah. fold it over and they draw the next bit of the picture. And yeah, it's, I think that's a beautiful way to do it. And it produced two of the most incredible action blockbusters in history. And I don't actually mind Alien 3 or Alien 4. Like they have their problems. I don't mind but, them either. But they, you know. I the, think they're it, interesting Alien, stories. Exactly. And taking advantage of the exquisite corpse structure, they went interesting places and did cool stuff and they never completely fucked the story and they never completely fucked the world. Alien got bad again when Ridley Scott came back to it and acted like he'd come up with the idea in the first place. He absolutely did not. I don't know why everyone thinks Ridley Scott was the guy who came up with Alien. It was Ronald Schusset, Dan O'Bannon and Uh, Ron Cobb. How do you feel about the way Alien rolls into Predator? I think it's bloody stupid. I don't mind it. I think I've seen one of them. It's entirely forgettable. I think that's. I think that's just. It's a comic um, thing, isn't it? Or graphic well, no, there's an AVP yeah, but, series. But, but isn't that where it yeah. comes from? Yeah, Whatever. and it comes from studios just going, "Hey, we've got these two monsters. Let's put them together." It'd yeah. be like putting 
like putting Leatherface and Jason in the same movie. It's like, ah, uh, oh, wait, there was, there, there was there was Jason one. and Freddy. Mm. Jason yeah, goes to hell. It's stupid. Like it's it's sandpit lunchtime child garbage. Like you know, just making up a dumb story because it's funny. Like with Japanese media. I think there's often a tendency to look at it as quite innovative. But for me, the really confronting moment was when they they made apparently a really terrible mashup of The Ring and The Grudge. Yeah, unnecessary. This right? is amazing. Like, you can find it on YouTube. This amazing scene where the two ghost girls jump and crash against each other over the top. That's funny. Oh, my God. It's atrocious. Yeah, that is terrible. Just to wrap up what I think about sequels, I really hate obvious sequel bait. Marvel, get in the bin. I've talked about how much I hate you. I hope you die. But it happens all over the place. Like, I think the worst offender I've seen was a British TV show called Life on Mars, which is about a cop who goes into a coma and in the coma travels back in time and has to solve a cold case in his coma. And then right at the end, he comes out of the coma and he solved the cold case. He comes out of the coma. It's a beautiful like six episode series. I think maybe it's longer. Maybe I'm remembering it as shorter, but it's great. It's all wrapped up. Everything's really neat. And then in this way that just feels insanely tacked on, he just goes up to the top of the hospital and jumps off the hospital roof so that he can go back into the coma. And I'm like, that's shit. Like, <laughs> that's so lame. That is such a bad way to get out of this. Like, just, yeah, just stop. Have the you courage. have a resolution. <laughs> yeah, have the courage to finish your story. And the, there was a second series and I never watched it because I was so off put by this notion that he that jumping off the roof of the hospital would be enough to put him back in a coma. Like, fuck off. Anyway, that's what I think about thoughts. <laughs> so, but no, yeah. Just on the definition of the sequels, and I, I, as I was reading them out, it came to me. A good example of the standalone and legacy sequel types in fiction is romance series, and they might be multiple authors or they might be just one author using their own setting. But what happens is every single book gets its own ending and then the next book in the series will... If, uh, sometimes it might be an anthology series, so it might be four or five books in a set and each one will have its own set of characters, but they'll be interrelated with all the characters in another set. But every single book gets its own ending and there might be a meta story going over the top of it. This mm. is what happens in wild cards. Yes, mm. yes. Pixie G. Martin no, does know how to do endings, just not in fantasy. But he's <laughs> an editor of wild cards. Yeah, but he's also one of the contributing authors. And then oftentimes it'll be an example is the Lona Andrews. They'll have a story and then they will use the same setting later on for a different story. And they know endings because that is the whole point of the romance genre is you need an ending. And if you're going to do multiple characters, then they each get their own book. <laughs> and that's partly the whole process of writing and marketing or whatever. So that's part of it. But part of it is their readers like, well, don't leave us on a cliffhanger. <laughs> they don't, they're not as tolerant as fantasy readers in that sense. So I just thought I'd mention that. But what I actually wanted, and we're going back to Star Wars, but it's a game because I don't think we've really mentioned games at this point. And I'm going to talk about Knights of the Old Republic which were sort of mid uh, early 2000s games. There were two of them and they were a great setting and it was set, I don't know, thousands of years before the Star Wars movies so they could play around and do some interesting stuff. And I'm not going to, if anyone hasn't played it, I know we do talk spoilers, but if anyone hasn't played it, there's a great reveal twist in the first game and... It's the end of the first act in the first game. The reveal of Revan? Yeah. It's towards the, oh, I'd say it's the end of the second act, but anyway, and then that game ends. I actually think that... 
National Republic 2 has a better story. For me, it's what I love. It's the aftermath of the galaxy-shattering events of the first game. The main character has to deal with the consequences of planet destruction. There's refugees you have to deal with. There's dispossessed on Nar Shaddaa. There's absolute distrust of both Jedi and Sith. People go, it's just a religious civil war, isn't it? You know, why do we care? And it was such good storytelling, but it was let down by the ending, which... LucasArts made Obsidian, who did it, rush it out for a Christmas release. So they basically just, the final half hour is just the villain narrating the ending of all the characters. <laughs> it was such a disappointment. And and it, it, it was one of those instances where I think the sequel was equal to and in some ways better than the original game, but the ending let it down. And, well, now it's, it's uh, Old Republic is a mo- massive multiplayer online game, which I haven't played, but I just thought they were two really good games that stood up on their own, separate from the whole Skywalker thing. There are no Skywalkers anywhere around. And there's a lot of lore that was really interesting and decisions and storytelling that was really good in those two games. So that was a good sequel, except for the ending. <laughs> so I thought that fitted in this episode. So how, okay, so we talked about what makes a good ending and we all seem to be broadly aligned on that, right? Which is that it resolves something. Could be emotionally satisfying, right? Yeah, it's emotionally satisfying. It resolves something. It's separate to the climax and that's important, I think, because it's a resolution, not a climax. And that ultimately it, you know, wraps the story up, but it doesn't wrap the characters up necessarily. In fact, I would say it can't wrap the characters up. So what makes a bad ending? Is there something beyond just it doesn't do those things? Not being true to the characters, okay. not being written. <laughs> well, not being written, sure. But, I mean, not being written, you might as well say a bad anything. It's just a thing that doesn't exist. Through, like, 40 hours of game to have the, the villain narrate I mean, that, something I mean, to that, you. That is written, but... And can I just say, Darth Traer was a freaking fantastic villain. They did a <laughs> dirty at the ending. Yeah, so I think, I mean... I mean, the, I mean look, the problem with that is Graver. the end is not... <laughs> So the problem with KOTOR 2 is with that ending is that it's not a gameplay ending. Yeah. Right. So you've had, your, you actually have had a fight. something of climax, I guess, yeah. that last dungeon crawl, but it's not a gameplay ending, which is yeah. what's unsatisfied yeah. about yeah. it. Just, I think it is part of the problem with the form. I've read some interesting, I've never played Last of Us, but I've been reading some interesting things, people talking about what made it such a great game. And one of the most compelling arguments I've read suggested it was because it kind of was built in in cinema. Yes. So it took on so much of the cinematic form and tried to tell a mature and ambiguous story, a kind of form that is usually neither of those things, which, I mean, look, I take issue with a number of individual parts of the argument, but I think the argument probably holds. I will always resent Last of Us for being a Sony exclusive and there is no rational or critical engagement I can have with that text that is going to be able to get past that. Just rage-induced dislike. If I really <laughs> wanted to play it and I was not going to buy a fucking PlayStation to play it. And we could I'm have come to our pay... place and played it. I had to watch Dave playing it. I mean, the quick time events that I couldn't do. On console these days, I just want to play 2D games. I struggle with thumbsticks, so almost certainly never have played it regardless. And, yeah, I'm not paying $99 to play a PC port of it 200 years later. Like, I'm yeah. just not doing it. Fuck you, Sony. So to return to that notion that it was a, the groundbreaking nature of Last of Us was that, yeah, it is founded in – the game was founded in cinema. And mm. potentially what makes it not work is then you're taking it back to mm. a straightforward narrative with no gameplay. Yeah, mm. I wh- – why? What's the point? Yeah. First of all, our friend Frisky, she gave the first episode or two a try and she said, this 
you know, this doesn't feel groundbreaking. <laughs> well, yeah, it's about 15 years too late. The zombie genre is dead. So I can totally see that. And does it do anything new with the zombie genre? No, it did 10 years mm-hmm. ago, but it no longer does. So honestly, there, there's no point. Hollywood really needs to get over the recycling of IP and to give its writers a stretch to do something new. Yeah. One of the games I really enjoyed that was kind of a contemporary of Knights of Republic 2 was Jade Empire, and that had a really good ending. And I could have stood more games in that setting and they never came. Yeah, I agree. More games in that setting would have been new characters. Which oh, would absolutely. Been, that would, would have been, have been fine. great. Yeah. So it was basically a mystical retelling of the founding of China. So mm. if you've seen Hero or if you know that story, Bridge of Birds is another book that does it, you know kind of the essence of the story, but it was a very different version of it. And you find out halfway through the story that you're not the main character. <laughs> It was a fantastic game and it was like all these people keep telling you that there's a flaw in your martial arts and you just think it's because, you know, it's because you're better than them and no, it's because there is a flaw (laughs) in your martial arts. (laughs) It was so good. Even though that story was told and there had been a plan to do more stories in the Jade Empire setting and then they got bought out. So that was really sad and became part of EA Games and they had the first Mass Effect game out and then they started churning out more streamlined versions of games that were sequels. Yeah. We're seeing another period of consolidation in the game industry at the moment, actually in media in general, and I think we're going to see another round of crapification. No, of, crapification. Uh, well, well, I mean... Yeah, that's a, a partial reference to Cory Doctorow's recent essay. Yeah, we're just going to see another round of crapification of games and I think there's a reason that we're mostly playing indie games at the moment. Yeah, exactly. So on that note, I'm going to take us to, to our final thoughts. Many good book series, movies and TV shows have been let down by a terrible or even just an indifferent ending. So what are your thoughts on that, Nick? Well, I think I've taught myself out of the idea of closure. I started this by talking about how endings are there to close off the story and thus they're there to give us an escapism from the fact there's no closure possible in our own lives. But actually, I think we've come up with a much more delicate and interesting definition that suggests that actually the very best endings only partially offer closure and leave you with a lingering desire to remain in the world of the story, but no ability to do so. If I think about that longing you get after engaging with a really good ending, it's not a longing to, it's interesting, it's a nostalgic longing, right? It's not a longing to read more about the characters because you've read all the interesting things about the characters. And it's not a longing to have another story in the same world because the story in the world has been closed off. Like that's part of that idea that the story concludes, but the characters go on. The story's concluded, so there's nothing more interesting to happen to the characters, but the characters go on, so the story really is concluded, right? And so you have this nostalgic longing not to see more story, but to experience the story again for the first time. And I think where a lot of people make the mistake is that they they experience that, that grief and longing and nostalgia for, uh, they mistake it for a desire for more. And that's where you get the constant serialification and sequelification. But actually, I think a really good ending doesn't close things off. A really good ending is like a gut punch that makes you yearn for 
for a previous version of yourself. And that's kind of amazing. And I think that's part of why I like properly ambiguous endings. One of the examples that came up when I was Googling what's a bad ending is a film that stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Jake Gyllenhaal called Enemy. And it was on a list of bad endings. And it's a fucking weird film and kind of great, but it's got an ending that takes 20 minutes to take hold. So like the film just very suddenly ends and the credits roll and you go, what the fuck was that? That was terrible. And then 20 minutes later, you piece it together and go, oh no, that was great. And that's neat. Like that's a neat piece of filmmaking. It's like, it's so shocking that you've got to come out of shock to understand it. And I've never seen anything quite like it. Look, I'm very dubious about some of those lists of bad endings because I think all of them had no country for old men on it. I'm like, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing we haven't actually discussed, and I think it fits in between in your original definition, uh, Flip, about it can't be a hoax, but it's okay for it to be a trap. And I'm like, where does the twist fit? Is the twist a hoax or is the twist a trap? Because Fight Club is probably the best example of a good twist ending because a good twist ending actually makes the movie its own sequel, right? Like a good twist ending lets you immediately put the movie back on and go, oh, cool, I see that. Well, the interesting thing about Fight Club is it's bookended by that final scene. Right. Mm. It opens with, with his gun in his mouth and saying, mm. so you want to know how I got here? Uh, record scratch. Yep, that's me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I look, I do wonder if that's the one part I took issue with in your initial definition or they're not like a not deep issue. I just think it needs to be tightened up a little bit, which is when's yeah, it a yeah. hoax and when's it a trap? I think the hoax refers to the it was all a dream thing in my but mind. Yeah, but it was all a dream can be fine. Yeah. Wizard of Oz, which is the first one, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to a certain degree, I'm thinking Alice of, D- of Dallas. They right. lost two seasons of the show because they'd killed off a main character who then wanted to come back. And so his wife had s- slipped in the shower, hit her head, and it was all a dream. So that's, yeah, that's lame. Using a twist to cover off bad storytelling is a hoax. But I feel like, yeah, that's, I, you know what? That's the difference. But uh, hoax is actually the wrong word. It probably Trap is. is Yeah, trap is a good word for what we're talking about because a trap is something you set and actually there's something kind of nice sometimes about falling into it. I think Fight Club and The Usual Suspects probably would maybe be a trap with their twists. Absolutely, absolutely. But maybe instead of of hoax, we think about it more as a mistake. Like don't use shit storytelling to cover off your own mistakes or a bad ending covers off mistakes in the writing. A good ending bounces off them. Well, for me, I just want resolution. I'm sick of bad endings, non-endings, cliffhanger endings that don't get resolved, cancellations, looking at you, Westworld, and unfinished uh-huh. book series, looking at you, Martin, and others. You know, if I go back to my original definition of a good ending, so good endings make sense, they evoke emotion like contentment, anger, sadness, or curiosity, shift the reader's perspective or open their mind to new ideas. This is what's missing from so much fiction these days. It's just, you know, as you said, churning out serialization or whatever, and there's, it's not evoking the emotions that we want. And probably it's partly because they're made by people who, aside from the making money factor, they know that people liked something and they're trying to replicate it, but they don't understand what the people liked. They just want to replicate what worked before. So much of media these days is dominated by one of the most infuriating impulses. When I was up in Sydney at Christmas, I was in the pool with my three-year-old nephew and we started playing this game where he would kick me in the chest and I would exaggeratedly fly backwards and crash into the water with a big splash. And the first time I did it, he said, again. And then I did it again. And he said, again. (laughs) And then it took an hour and a half before he got bored. And that is the audience's interest in media. It's just a three-year-old saying, I want that feeling. Like, grow up. Just fucking grow up. Anyway. (laughs) So actually, we rag on Marvel a lot and 
totally deserved. But the end of Infinity War does that wrap up, right? Like they have a climax that, I mean, undoes the last movie. But then, you know, they tie up all the character threads and close some things off and, yeah, they leave a little bit open, but you know what? They could have actually just stopped the MCU there and it would have mm-hmm. been satisfying. Yeah. But they didn't well, stop to it. everyone except the <laughs> people who paid $4 billion for it or whatever it was. Yeah. So I'm actually going to sneak in an example here, Shit's Creek, and I'm sneaking in because Nick said it's not genre fiction, but it's a great <laughs> show that wrapped up and had an emotionally satisfying ending on its own terms and Dan Levy, the showrunner and writer, is on record as saying he wanted to have a proper ending rather than continue on indefinitely and get cancelled in the future and he left his audience wanting more but we were happy with what we got. So I think that's a really good example. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want an impossible more. I think that's the that's yeah. a good ending, right? The more needs to be impossible. And there's just not enough. Like a lot of people focus on the epic as, you know, it's a big world and maybe there's a big fight at the end, but they don't actually think about how to make that actually emotionally satisfying these days. No, because most of the time they're thinking about the logistics the of getting everybody into the fight or the logistics of getting out of the fight into the next movie. <laughs> Uh, I also want to mention quickly an author, Georgette Heyer. She basically invented the historical fiction genre with her um, Regency and Georgian romance novels. Everyone is standalone, but like particularly Venetia and everything and Unknown Ajax, they are all just a book, no sequel, but they are very, I want more, you know, I would like to know more about those characters and more in the universe. But she also has a detective series set contemporary, so 40s and 50s of when she was writing, and Envious Casca and Behold His Poison, they're just so freaking good, you know? Each one of those is good. So I just thought that she was an interesting example of a really good writer who just writes standalone books at the time and she wrote many books, but she didn't feel the need to, unlike Agatha Christie, who was a, a lot more sequelitis in some of the stuff she wrote, Georgette Hare was just writing standalone stuff and was very happy with it. And they're good. Read them. <laughs> And they're good, read them. <laughs> oh, Envious Casca is so freaking amazing. That brings us to the end of this episode of Pod Culture Oz. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you've enjoyed the discussion. Please follow us on Twitter where you can find us at podculture underscore Oz and let us know your thoughts on the discussion. Also, if you have any other comments about endings in genre fiction, we should check out. Next up, we have our five-star shout-outs. If you give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, it will help other people to find us, and we can only see your name if you leave a review. This month, we have a shout-out for Crystal Maria, who left us the following review. The hosts have so much charisma with each other, but they aren't afraid to disagree. So much to learn and love with this podcast. I can enjoy more facets of gaming, literature, and movies just by listening to the conversations had in each episode. Loving it all. So thank you so much for the time and effort that goes into making these. Can't wait for the next one. Thanks, Crystal Maria. We appreciate the review and hope you enjoyed this episode too. So if you'd like to get a shout out, please leave us a review and you'll be read out in the next episode. So let us know what you want to discuss in upcoming episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. Tell your friends about us and looking forward to chatting soon. And that's a wrap on this episode. So it's good boy from my co-hosts. And when you come to the end, stop. And the Omega. And until next time, it's goodbye from me. It was all a dream.